The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this episode are that of the guest and host and do not necessarily reflect the values of sponsors or other associated organizations. Welcome to the Parental Compass by Family Education and Support Services. I'm your host, Bobby Williams. Please subscribe to the show. And if you really want to help us out, leave a review on Apple Podcast. That helps us get the show out to more people, and it means a lot to us. Today, we are talking about neurodivergent youth. Often when a child is showing behavior we don't like, it's the default mode to think that they're just misbehaving or they're manipulating us. Our guest today has a different approach. Mona Delahook. Mona is a PhD, a clinical child psychologist, and author of multiple books, including Beyond Behaviors and Mind-Body Parenting. Mona talks about stress responses and how we can interact with children in a way that leaves them feeling safe and secure. It's a line of thinking that needs to become a lot more common, particularly for neurodivergent children. Let's check it out. You could have a perfectly wonderful parent who has a child who's experiencing a a, a stress response, a threat response, okay? It's not what you do to a child. It's how the child experiences it in their nervous system. And so maybe some of your listeners have um, are, are thinking, well, you know, I, I try my best. I'm a good parent, but my child has these random, really challenging behaviors and I don't understand them. And this is why. So much is going on. I, I liken behaviors as the tip, just the tip of the iceberg. And um, they are very meaningful as to what's going on inside the body. That's the key. What about when children, like I can understand throwing a tantrum, they're upset, but sometimes children just straight ignore you. And it's very frustrating, like, okay, it's time to go. And they're not even responding. Is that connected to this? Yeah. And let me just make a um, um, respectfully a little comment um, on the idea that children throw tantrums. I don't think children throw tantrums because that makes it sound like they're doing it on purpose. Mm. When someone starts to scream, kick, froth at the mouth, roll around on the floor, hit things, yell, that is called the fight or flight system. What, what I call the red pathway, that is what many people think is throwing a tantrum. So it's not being thrown. The body is doing it for the child. The child's not in charge. So what you just mentioned is a very important link and it's absolutely related. When someone disconnects or ignores, that's also a sign of, of some degree of stress in the nervous system. Um, because we, be, we believe, we know now that behaviors are protective and adaptive. So there's always a reason. There's always a reason. Kids don't just ignore to make our lives miserable, even though I totally get that that's how it feels. As a parent, I remember that well. Yeah. So there's kind of fight, flight, or freeze. Is that tied into this, would you say? 
I would say it is. Yeah, that is a um, the most basic, um, commonly known three pathways. But actually, there there are more than those. There are what we consider blended pathways, and the research on that is very complex, complex and continuing. But in a very general sense, um, I talk about those main three pathways. They're useful to think about if you're just starting out with trying to understand the brain and body. The red is the fight or flight. The green is when we're calm in our body. And the blue is when we're disconnected. Hmm. So what do you do when your child is upset then? Yeah. So first of all, you check. You do a check-in. Um, the first check-in is with ourselves, because as a parent, if you are in that red, if you're in the, in the red zone, you will probably do or say things that later on make you feel a little bit like, Oh, why did I say that? You know, that's when we're in the fight or flight, we tend to not parent very well. So first thing is check yourself. If you're totally out of control, take a moment, take a breath, feel your feet on the ground. Um, if you have another adult available, just get a, a little break because we, our relationship is so dependent on safety. So check yourself. Number two, check the child. Are they red, blue, green? Are they in control or is their body literally out of control? If their body's out of control, then we go to soothing. Um, of course, making sure everyone's safe and you can use your values and your limits your boundaries, all of that is fine. But the main goal there is to help calm the nervous system so that the child will begin to feel more in control again. It seems like with children, particularly I think neurodivergent children, it's like you're playing a detective, like what is this behavior about? What's causing this? And that's a lot more difficult than just this child is choosing to misbehave. Am I correct in this? Absolutely. It, it it's it's like an archaeological dig, you know, it's like a it's like becoming a detective. It's so true, Bobby, that it's it's not easy, but it's doable. And especially, I shouldn't say especially for our neurodivergent children, but I think our neurodivergent and autistic children and adults are so misunderstood and so judged and miss and and judged and actually othered where we don't we really are are struggling with with neurodiversity acceptance in our culture so once we understand that and respect those differences in movement differences in how we present how we move our bodies how we how we socialize once we begin to um to to accept those differences and stop trying to change them the world's going to be a better place for our neurodivergent humans. I think so often it gets viewed as a deficit. And there's yeah. a lot of positive things that come from being neurodivergent too. Mm. That people don't often think about. A million percent. I mean, if you think about, okay, I could, I could go on with all the neurodivergent people that have changed the world, but when you see the world and experience the world in a different way, you have such a unique gift to offer. So I'm so glad you said that. I could not agree with you more. Well, you talk about relational security. Can you explain a little bit more of that concept? 
from the moment we're born, humans are on a quest to feel safe. That is built into every cell in our body. We're on a quest to feel safe. And of course, that starts out in the body. I was looking at this photo um, last night of my three-year-old granddaughter holding her uh, six-week-old baby brother. And (laughs) he had wide open eyes and his arms were up and it looked like he was about to slide off of her lap. So his little body, pre-verbal, can't talk, his body knew it wasn't safe. It's built in. Those eyes, the hands flailing up was like, I need to protect myself. So that's going to be, um, that, that urge to feel safe happens throughout the lifespan. And the way children develop resiliency and mental health and a strong sense of, of really flexibility in life is when their caregivers help them feel safe through a compassionate presence through the relationship. And that the, the research on building the architecture of the brain, uh, which I talk about in my latest book, brain body parenting, the literature, the research is so strong on that is that brains are built through relationships of safety and um, this, and, and remember, safety is in the eye of the beholder. It's not what the parent thinks should necessarily be right for the child. Of course, that matters. But what we want to do is observe the infant, observe the toddler, observe the teenager. How is the world landing in their body and brain? And there's the magic key right there. It's, it's how it's help, is, is helping them come to know and love themselves. Well, that brings up a good point. It was make me, making me think when you have those relationships, you feel comfortable in yourself or comfortable in your own skin a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Another thing you were making me think about with the, with the baby, babies don't get enough credit for how really intelligent they are. Yes. And I, I think a piece of that is they don't have language yet, but they have personalities and, you know, they're, they're thinking. And often with neurodivergent children, it's like, if they're not talking to you, sometimes people think they're not thinking. Mm. You know what I'm saying? A hundred percent. And that is one of the biggest misnomers um, that, you know, I have a, a, a non-speaking um, adult client and he he just said spread the word because when he was a child people thought that because he was not a non-speaker that he couldn't think and so his abilities were way high school level and they were reading re- for you know kindergarten readers to him it's like not being able to speak does not equate with intelligence whatsoever so thank you for putting that out there. You're absolutely right. That's where we have to start to develop this respect for individual differences. And um, I think help help individuals who are non-speakers get that communic- augmented communication, whether it's um, 
through technology or through a special type of, of speech therapy where they're um, able to go around, work around um, the brain wiring differences. Well, I think a lot of the ideas that you're talking about here are becoming more part of the mainstream, but still aren't always mainstream. Mm -hmm. And when you think about schools, you're putting so much trust in the school to do a good job taking care of your child. Mm -hmm. How can you get them on this type of thinking? That's mm -hmm. challenging. And, and schools also are very insulated. We have our way of doing things. So it almost feels like you're lower in the power dynamic sometimes. Yes, yes. Um, I can't tell you how many parents over the last, you know, 25, 30 years have told me the same thing that they feel like they are not the central leader on their child's IEP team, for example, or, or, you know, not, of not valued, or if they disagree, they may be labeled like you're, you're over-involved or, or maybe trying to, um, protect your child too much. So. Unfortunately, I think that is happening. And first of all, no blame, no shame to teachers. I know the I know teachers and administrators want the best for children. I, at least I believe most of them do. The ones I've met certainly do. But our education system is very outdated in how they view and support families and children particularly neurodivergent children. So what I would say to parents is keep your seat at the table, know your rights, and know that this new way of thinking um, is this way of thinking of, of safety and relationships first. The, these relationship-based approaches are also the most neuroscience-based so you have a lot of data that you can provide your districts with. If you need data, please visit my website. I've got um, many blog posts there and resources there for you. Um, but in my tell book, us the, yeah. tell us the website real quick. Oh, sure. It's uh, just my name. It's uh, monadelahook.com. And it's uh, M-O-N-A-D-E-L-A-H-O-O-K-E, myname.com. My and I have uh, so many blog posts about IEPs and, and advocacy and how you use this new language. Um, and the and then I also have a book called Beyond Behaviors where uh, so many, like over 300 um, sources in neuroscience supporting how brain growth needs this relate neuroscience of safety. And many of our, it's well-documented that many of our autistic and neurodivergent youth, including our youth that have been exposed to trauma, like our foster children, yeah. are receiving punitive care. And um, which, which I, what I mean by that is techniques that may include timeouts, ignoring, um, maybe even seclusion and sometimes restraint in inordinate amounts that is not appropriate to any situations anymore. So we need to update our school, our schools. And um, my colleague and friend Ross Green uh, believes that as well. Um, 
So if you need additional resources, there's a site called Lives in the Balance that also can help you advocate for your child. You do not have to agree to these punitive approaches. Uh, we just had them on last week on the show. So good timing with that. Perfect. I worked with youth in foster care for several years who had bounced between 10 different foster placements or so before coming to work with me and work with us. And it will, what you're talking about is so true. It's tough just to get them to be able to stay in school. And I, I think the school's response is often like, well, we have to look out for all the other children here. And if they're being disruptive, but it's like, well, this kid has a right to be educated and they're part of our community too. What is the approach then? Like in a real practical way, you have a neurodivergent child that, I don't know, is getting up from their desk or something. What would be kind of the one, two, three of diving in and fixing, not even fixing, but just handling it in a different way? Yeah. So number one, we flip the narrative about what that behavior means. So we look at the behavior as the tip of the iceberg. Here's a general consideration. Well, the first consideration is um, we believe that children do well when they can. As Ross Green says, if when they can't, there's a reason. And the reason isn't because they're a bad person or trying to you know, disrupt a whole classroom of kids. The reason, in my opinion, is much deeper. It's a stress response. So think about the nature of movement. First thing we do, here's a child who can't stay in their seat. We ask the question, why can't their body stay still? Remember that self-regulation comes from that calm green pathway. The way that is developed and built is through safety and relationships, particularly in the first five years of life. Many of our foster children did not get that architecture built because by the nature of being a foster child, you have developmental trauma and you've been abandoned or mistreated by your caregivers. You don't have that relational security you're talking about. You don't have that relational security. And what that, what that equates to in your body is that you don't have the actual brain networks that help you calm your body down when you're in distress. That's why you see a lot of our vulnerable children with behavior challenges and they're com in completely misunderstood. They, they need the more the child's body is disruptive and agitated, the more vulnerable it is and the more they need relational security. It's quite the opposite of how our education system views it right now, which is the more acting out a child is, the heavier the um, consequences on them. So you take a non-judgmental approach. You try to get to the why and then address the why more than consequence or you're in timeout or you're expelled or something. Absolutely. And, and even more important than addressing the why is to remember that at the, at the bullseye of all this, is human compassion. So the teachers, and please, we need we need more support for teachers. We need aides in the classroom. We need grandparent volunteers and people who love children 
to give, give these children the message that they are valued and that they're witnessed when they are in these stress responses, that they're witnessed with compassion and not with, um, you know, disgust or anger. Great conversation, Mona. I wish we had a whole hour to really dive in. Any closing thoughts you want to leave us with? I'm just so glad that you are having these difficult conversations, Bobby, about these topics that really need to be talked about. So um, thank you so much for having me on. And um, yeah, I, I encourage parents. I love to uh, post things on social media and uh, let's join together, speak up when necessary and try to shift the paradigm. Right on. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mona. You're doing incredible work. It was an honor having you on the show. This has been the Parental Compass by Family Education and Support Services. I'm Bobby Williams. We'll see you next week. Peace.